17 years ago, I had a meeting with a gentleman named Rusty Keeley, and I shared with him that I did not know if I had what it took to become a motivational speaker, to build this business, to touch lives around St. Louis, around Missouri, maybe even as far as Illinois. And he challenged me to believe in myself, to cast a vision for impacting lives, not only in our own backyard, but around the world. Since that time, we've had the opportunity and the honor of partnering with more than 2,000 clients in 50 states, a couple dozen countries, a couple million people. We've released now a couple, that's two, number one national best-selling books and have this remarkable podcast. Thank you for listening to it. Because of Rusty's vision, because of his belief, because of his challenge for me to imagine this impact and to pursue it diligently. It has impacted my life, and not only that, but Rusty is a sponsor today of this podcast. Keeley Companies now does more than $500 million in annual revenue through construction and infrastructure technology, wireless logistics, and development solutions. It's their world-class, people-first mentality that makes the biggest impact. I've seen this firsthand in my life. The team, the Keeleyans now feel in their lives and those that are benefiting from Rusty and the Keeley work experience it in their lives. If you want to learn more about Rusty Keeley and that business, I encourage you to check out KeeleyCompanies.com. KeeleyCompanies.com or better yet, why not listen to the Live Inspired podcast where I celebrate our relationship. Check it out. It's episode 296. You'll experience there an in-depth conversation with my friend, the CEO of Keeley Companies. His name is Rusty Keeley. Welcome to the Live Inspired Podcast with John O'Leary. John is the number one national best-selling author of the book On Fire. He's a world-class inspirational speaker, and he's the host of the Live Inspired Podcast. John interviews extraordinary individuals on their life story so that you can wake up from accidental living and more fully live your life story. Here's your host, John O'Leary. Hello, my friends, and welcome to the Live Inspired Podcast with John O'Leary. If you are like me and millions and millions and millions around not only the United States, but around the world, by the way, just a quick shout out to my friends from around the world. We have people who tune in from more than 75, no, no, not, not municipalities around my city, no, 75 different countries. One of the things that unites us, yeah, love and the Live Inspired podcast, but one other thing, probably our passion over the last 12 months and our gratitude for Netflix. Yeah, I know. I would imagine some of us over the last 12 months of COVID have experienced a little bit of time in front of the television and a little bit of time in front of Netflix. Where did that company come from? Where did that idea generate? Who was behind that? Well, today, leaders, family, sons, daughters, friends, business tycoons, I have the opportunity and the honor of introducing you to a friend of mine. His name is Mark Randolph. He is the founder and the very first leader of Netflix. And in our conversation today, he's going to share not only the origin story of Netflix, he's going to share another name that they had considered for Netflix. Let me just tell you this. Be very grateful they did not call it what they were thinking of calling it. I'll let you be the judge of that yourself as he goes through the story. He's going to share the story of, wow, many people who build big, big, big businesses in whatever part of life they may be building them. They frequently lose sight of their family and the things that matter most. Mark has been laser focused on his family and the things that matter most, even while building Netflix. It's a beautiful part of this story. He's going to talk about David versus Goliath, not only from the scriptural lens, but in the Netflix verse blockbuster story, it's a remarkable thing that I learned quite a bit about during this podcast. One thing I will say to you, though, on the front side is I grabbed Mark in between meetings. The recording at times is a little bit spotty, but I'm telling you right now, if you can lean in and you can turn the volume up a little bit, you are going to find yourself getting some remarkable ideas, not only to apply in your business for those of us who are actively growing businesses as entrepreneurs, but in your family, in your spiritual life, in your physical life, in your emotional life, and in your life beyond. You're going to love this conversation with my friend Mark Randolph. So what I encourage you to do right now, community, family, friends, is to grab a journal. I know, here we go again. Grab a pen so you can take some notes. 
lean forward. No, don't lean back. Lean forward and get ready to be moved by my friend and now yours. His name is Mark Randolph. Mark, brother, welcome to Live Inspired with John O'Leary. John, pleasure to be with you. Thanks for having me on. One of the questions I would imagine you sometimes get asked by people, you know, friends, neighbors, people you meet in grocery stores is number one, hey, what's your name? Then you tell them and then they say, what, what do you do? What do you do for a living, Mark? So when someone looks at you with their hand outstretched, shaking your hand pre-COVID days, what is your job these days? What do you do for a living, Mark? Well, that's very different than what I tell people I do for a living. (laughs) Certainly, having Netflix turn into what it turned into is a wonderful thing in terms of the doors it opens and the opportunities it gives you and the platform you get. But it also has this huge risk of typing you as the, you know, you're the Netflix guy. And I desperately do not want to be the Netflix guy. You know, it's what I did and not who I am, as the expression goes. And so the other thing is, what I do doesn't fit neatly into a category. I mean, if you say I'm a mentor, everyone has no idea what the hell that means. And so I usually just make something up, to be quite frank. I mean, I, I'm a marketing consultant. <laughs> I, uh, you know, I, I'm a business consultant. Only because then they can kind of categorize me, at least approximately in the right aisle of the supermarket, even right. if they don't necessarily know what the ingredients are, or what they'll get if they consume it. And then they probably walk away from you too, which is uh, pr- probably not altogether sometimes a bad thing. So, so mark- marketing consultants, I want to welcome you back to the Live Inspired podcast. And rather than talking about what you're doing today, I want to start at the beginning, man. Talk about New York, talk about growing up and uh, some of the experiences from your childhood that informs the man that you would grow into. Well, it's funny, you know, you only really realize how you were in- impacted by your youth when you're an adult looking back on it. Um, But I think probably the defining characteristic of my youth that made me who I am was the fact that my parents were always encouraging experimentation. So they were the types of parents who rather than being risk averse, rather than being deeply overprotective, were almost the opposite. And I don't mean the opposite in a um, neglect way. But just to give you a classic example, you know, I was a big outing club kind of kid when I was, uh, you know, in middle school. And I remember you'd come home one day and I told my dad, you know, oh, cool, this weekend we're going caving. And rather than saying, oh, my God, what are you, you kidding? You're going to get killed. They'd go, oh, that sounds fantastic. And so every fork in the road, they'd almost be encouraging me to take the riskier one. Another time... I told my dad, I go, I, I'd love, I'm going to try and figure out how to repel, you know, that process where you slide down a, a rope, down a cliff, usually. And I go, I'm going to do it out of the tree in the backyard. And instead of like going, you're going to break your arm. It was more, well, I think I, we have a rope in the, uh, in the garage. <laughs> and, and it was like that all the way. I'd say, I want to earn, uh, I want to buy something. They go, well, there's, you can go sell American seeds which was that basically almost indentured servitude where you'd spend uh, 6,000 hours selling seed packets and earn a whistle or something <laughs> like that. It was these chances to go out and figure it out. And they right. would say, go figure it out. Go learn, go try, go take the chance. And I mean, so that when you- From your dad, was your mother the same way? Oh, she was in fact more so. I mean, I use my dad because I gave you a couple of examples of the outdoorsy type of stuff. But in some ways, he was a um, Wall Street guy. I mean, he was an investment banker, um, an extremely conservative that way. And he had also grown up during the Depression, and his parents had lost uh, most of their money and real estate during the Depression. Uh, and so he was very risk averse, but not, but there was this deep conflict within him. And so I think what he was doing was projecting onto me what he wished he was or wished he had become. Whereas my mom was much more of a natural entrepreneur. I mean, she started her own business when she was, when I was finally um, old enough to spend most of the day in school and she could actually focus on something. Um, and then she became actually a fairly successful female entrepreneur. So I had, I had it in both sides. You, you mentioned caving. And you mentioned <laughs> repelling. You mentioned the outdoors. Talk about Knowles. How did you get involved with that organization? 
So I've always been an outdoors person. I mean, almost for as long as I can remember, we would all as a family kind of go camping or go hiking. Uh, my father grew up in Austria um, and he had a summer place when he was growing up in the mountains, which was his happy spot. And so very early on, he'd bring the whole family to this little mountain town in Austria. So I knew I liked it. And so when I turned 14 that summer, my mom packed me off uh, to this one month program in Wyoming called Knowles, the National Outdoor Leadership School. And for me, it was cool. I'm going to learn all these mountain climbing and I'm going to learn how to cross rivers and I'm going to spend a month, you know, living in a tent. Uh, but that's not quite what Knowles had in mind. So they did spend the entire month with you in the mountains. They dropped you off at a roadhead, uh, off you'd go, and they'd come back and pick you up in a month. And the format, though, was basically leadership training. And they did this by breaking the group into small groups, uh, maybe four or five students and one instructor, and they'd appoint a leader of the day. And that person would then be charged with leading the group. They'd decide, when do we leave? What route do we take? How often or how long are our breaks? When do we stop for lunch, et cetera. And tailing behind, but not saying anything, was the course instructor. And wow, did you learn a lot about leadership by actually having to do it? Right. Because now, you know, if you, you quickly learned that it was not a good idea to take an hour and a half lunch break, that it was not a good idea to start at 1030 in the morning when you knew you had so many miles to go. Um, and this was when I was 14. Right. And there are so few opportunities in life, especially for a young person, where you're given the opportunity to make real decisions with real consequences, and then more importantly, find out only a few hours later how well you did. And you internalize leadership. You learn how to communicate with this confidence and clarity decisions that you are personally not that confident or clear about. Um, and I did that when I was 14, went back again when I was 15, then 16, then 17, and then got a job working for the school as an instructor myself, became an instructor, then a patrol leader, then eventually in charge of the entire course. But each time it's graduated responsibility. And I, so I was doing this for seven or eight years by the time I graduated um, college. And so then when I began actually moving into roles where I was doing it for quote unquote, for real, meaning in an economic sense, right. I'd already been doing it for eight years. Was there, you know, I love nature, man. So I'm going to ask you kind of a, an obnoxious question, but was there a moment when you were on top of a mountain or outdoors somewhere where you just had this like wildly spiritual experience, whether it was something you saw or felt or overcame that you can look back on and be like, gosh, uh, John, countless times, but here's one specific. Well, I was just going to say there's certainly no singular moment because it happens uh, all the time. Right. And they're kind of these blends of, there's really three different spiritual ex three experiences that happen. I mean, certainly one is just the beauty of it all. You'll be in some spectacular place, just kind of in a way overcome with, how miraculous this is. And I can remember one time being in the Smoky Mountains, I guess that's down in the Appala lower Appalachian someplace, and just having the light coming in in the late afternoon and that hazy feeling and the different gradations of blue moving off into the background. And just, you can feel it welling up in your heart. Yeah. Um, and there's also this sense of occasionally where you feel that everything in your ability to stay healthy or alive is dependent on what happens in the next several moments. And coming through that is this tremendous feeling of adrenaline, of this rush, which is hard to replace. But you know, the most transcendent thing I believe, why I really enjoy spending so much time and the types of things I do in the mountain is that it's living in the moment in a way which is hard to reproduce other ways. When you are whipping down a trail on a mountain bike, uh, you cannot be thinking about, oh, I've got this meeting coming up tomorrow. You cannot be reliving that conversation you had this morning with your son that I was too harsh or 
No, you are entirely focused on the moment. And there's something about being here now, which um, not only is, is so wonderful when it happens, but it's a lesson that you can apply so many other uh, times to recognize when, in fact, you're not living life, that you're either reliving life or anticipating life. And that both of those experiences pale so significantly relative to what's happening to you at the moment. Mark, I've read that you went to Hamilton College and upon graduating that your father gave you a little love letter with a little bit of advice, a, a few steps that you should consider taking daily. Is that, is that an accurate uh, truth? And not when I graduated, but it actually happened the evening before I was gonna start my very first job where he called me into the family room and he was sitting in his chair um, and tore a little page off of the small yellow uh, ruled pad and handed it to me. And he had written in pencil, Randolph's Rules for Success. What was so striking about the Randolph Rules for Success that he gave me before I started my first job is that th this is, remember, he's an investment banker, works every day in finance. And I wouldn't have been surprised if the idea, if the rules were things like, you know, buy low and sell high, or happiness is positive cash flow, or something businessy. But these were more personal rules, yeah. you know, uh, be open-minded, but skeptical, uh, quantify when possible, be considerate, uh, always up and down. These were rules about how to be a good person. And the fact that he would define rules for being a good person as rules of success said something fairly profound about what he believed success really was. And what in fact has kind of informed what my view of what success really is. How do you view success? You've achieved quite a bit of success. We're about to start talking about that. Some of the missteps, some of the lessons and what you've ultimately achieved with it. But what is your vision of success? Actually, I bet you it's different than the success that you will say that I've achieved. Yeah. I kind of define it a little bit differently in that it's not about economic success. It's not about commercial success. Um, in fact, I was lucky that I kind of learned the ingredients of success when I was reasonably early in my career. Because for me, what you're lucky if you realize is that what are you good at and what do you really enjoy doing? And I figured both of those things out when I was probably in my late 20s. And it turns out it's doing early stage companies. It's doing startups. It's taking things that don't exist and helping to create them. I love doing that. And in fact, here's a modesty warning. I'm, I'm actually pretty good at it. I've been able to build a career doing that for 40 years. And then I look back, I go, that, that's my definition of, uh, of success. There's an even deeper, this is a little more mushy, but it's completely sincere. There's an even deeper meaning of success is that I've been able to do both of those things is spend time doing things that I'm good at and that I really enjoy and then I've built these, I've had been a part of seven companies and two of them, of course, have been huge successes. What I'm proudest of, the real success is I was able to do that while staying married to the same woman, uh, my best friend, and having my kids grow up yeah. knowing me and best I can tell liking me and getting a chance to still spend time surfing, mountain biking, um, kayaking, and the things that make me whole. And the fact that I could put all that stuff together, that, that's success. And that's what I'm proud of having achieved. So just being totally candid and letting the, our listeners step alongside of us for a moment, we get an opportunity to interview a whole lot of great business leaders. And most of them we just take a pass on because for me, and I think for our listeners, it's not only about top line. It's not only about bottom line profitability. It's not only about growth. It's about humanity. And uh, one of the things I recognize is in reading your book and then learning your story is balance for you and focus on family is so important. And even when you were growing Netflix, which is what we're going to start talking about here in a moment, this idea of having date nights, this idea of being there for your wife, this idea of helping raise those kids, it wasn't like, well, I'll get back to it once I do this thing, once I become an adult, once I grow up and make a lot of money. No. I'm going to do this while I'm doing everything else. It's, it's that important to me. I love the fact that for you, success 
includes balance and it includes certainly family and doing it the right way from the early earliest days. It's funny you talk about from the earliest days and what happened from early in my life. And I gave you, when you first asked that, more of the entrepreneurial examples. But I grew up in a fairly affluent community in New York. It was hugely formative because this was a very wealthy community. There was extremely rich, powerful people who in many cases were miserable. And I grew up seeing that firsthand, that this, this person, they're the senior vice president of this huge Fortune 500 company, but their kids don't speak to them and they're divorced. What it did was it broke that connection that somehow money or power or climbing the ladder was this key to happiness. And it, it isn't like I had, you know, I, oh, I, I, wow, I'm seven, I figured this out. It just happens through osmosis. It's, it's counteracting what we watch on television, which does equate those things to happiness. That was hugely formative and toward getting to the point where I go, no, if I want to have balance and I want to do these things uh, with a family who knows me and likes me, I'm gonna have to prioritize that. I'm gonna have to make sure that's a priority from the beginning. Like you said, it's not something you can say, I'll do this once I'm done with the other thing. They'll, they'll be long gone by then. Well, one of the priorities you had and have, from my understanding, is date nights. <laughs> Around here, we talk about the value of that. And as a guy who at one point pre-COVID-19 was on the road quite a bit myself, my wife and I have been having date nights once a week for going back more than a decade while raising kids and traveling and building businesses and taking care of family and everything else. We make time for one another. It's really been critical in our relationship, but I have not met a whole lot of startup executives and CEOs who have that same commitment to it, to be honest with you. You, Mark, do. When did you and your wife begin to say, you know what, we've got to set aside time to make time for one another? Well, you know, most of these things happen because you screw it up, (laughs) you know, and so this is probably, you know, in my mid to late 20s, when I was living with my then, my girlfriend, then the woman who is my wife now, I was working like a dog. I was working crazy, crazy hours. You can just feel things slipping away. And then all of a sudden you have the moment of clarity that goes, if I don't do something about this, um, I'm going to lose something which I think is rare and important. Um, and this probably happened late 20s for me. And that was the point where I go, I need to prioritize this. And it's kind of ironic because as an entrepreneur, I am anti-planning. I aggressively fight planning. I advise people stop planning. But when you need to make a life plan, it's a critical part of it that, you know, if you don't have a clear view of where you want to go and how you're going to get there, most likely you're not going to get there, especially in the stuff. So that's why we said, okay, what can we do? And listen, there's other things besides the date night you do to make sure you prioritize this is an important part of your life. But date night's a very easy one to recognize it's something you can put on a calendar. And I started this well before Netflix, but it, it certainly carried all the way through, you know, that if there was going to be a crisis, well, we're going to wrap it up by five. And if you, you have to talk to me, well, great. We're going to do it on the way to the car. And as you, I hope have found in your own experiences doing it, that if you stick to your guns during those brutal first two or three months of trying to reinforce to enforce that discipline, eventually everyone eventually cottons on to the fact that you're serious about this. And then what an amazing thing that is that all of a sudden the crises just seem to dissipate by five o'clock and you're no longer being invited to meetings at seven or eight o'clock because people realize you're just not going to show. And then the more powerful thing, this is really the more valuable one, especially for an entrepreneur, is that people talk about culture all the time. Here's the culture we want. Well, the way to get the culture you want is to demonstrate the culture you want. You have to walk the walk. And you can talk and you're blue in the face about it. Our company, it's important. We all have balance and blah, 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 blah. But when people see the CEO of the company doing it, then they go, well, he, he's serious. And then not only do they give you the space for you to do it, but you find them all of a sudden making the space to do it in their own relationships. And then you've really, I think, accomplished something as a, as a leader. That's huge. So you, you and Reed Hastings, when were you first introduced to each other? Reed purchased a little 
nine person startup that I had co-founded with two other guys. And it was a kind of a great outcome because this little company, we were still in beta. I mean, we barely had customers at that point. And so all of a sudden, our stock options were worth something. And of course, the investors made all this money. But the best part was that we were now going to go work for this big company. All of them, the other eight of them, were going to form a business unit and be dispatched to the basement of this big, huge building to work on the product. Reed plucked me to now become the VP of marketing at this company. It was a bit of a shock because I was a cerebral, early stage vision nine-person company, and then boom, um, running marketing for this multi-thousand employee, multinational software company. But the silver lining was it turned out that Reed and I lived in the same town and began carpooling to work every day. And it got six months, basically, of carpool time to uh, get to know each other and uh, become friends. It's almost like too good of a story. Like, so which part of this are you going to make up here in a moment? Because, you know, here you are now carpooling from one spot to the other. You're talking about business and life and also brainstorming crazy ideas that you can begin looking toward tomorrow. As you're beginning to brainstorm together on those drives and on the whiteboard sessions, what, what are some of the, the crazy ideas that maybe have has not yet come to fruition? The brainstorming really happened in earnest because then this big company that Reed had founded and was running was sold too. <laughs> but being a big public company, there was a you know government clearances six months. And so Reed and I both realized we were going to be out of a job. They've already had a VP of marketing and a CEO. Uh, and we had to stick around for six months. So that was the wonderful time of brainstorming what to do next. And you're right. There were some ridiculous ideas, you know, because I knew, I mean, I had done, uh, I had done five companies private prior to this. So I knew I'm doing another startup. Reed was going to go back to school, but he wanted to keep a hand in. He was going to, I said, he said, I'll stake you. I'll be this board chair. Right. Off we go. So I knew what I wanted to do. And it was not video. Uh, it was e-commerce. You know, I was a direct marketing guy for 20 years before I got to Silicon Valley. And so when I saw the internet coming along, I immediately recognized how powerful this was going to be as a direct response tool, and more particular as a way for selling things. So what are the ideas? They're brilliant. Brilliant, John. I, let me pick, I'll pitch you one. By the way, listeners, don't turn them off yet. I think you'll see the humility and the tongue-in-cheek remarks <laughs> ideas that my brother Mark Randolph is about to share with you to never try for you young entrepreneurs out there listening. So go ahead. Oh, Mark. yeah. This is the pitch. Okay. Imagine, if you will, personalized shampoo. <laughs> You're going to cut off a lock of your hair. You're going to mail it to us. And I have a team of ace hair scientists who are going to formulate a blend just for you. And then you're going to subscribe to it. And so a new tube is going to appear in your mailbox once a month. Brilliant. And yeah, Reed, Reed didn't like that one too much. He was able to shoot all kinds of holes in that one. Okay. A couple of days later, custom dog food. We're going to formulate a custom blend just for your pet, for his age and his activity level and his gender, or climate, whatever and you subscribe to it. Personalized baseball bats or personal, you know, I had all these ideas and you can see there are some common threads. Yeah. One is they're one-to-one -one personalized. Number two is subscription, uh, all done direct to consumer. So those were the categories. And then of course I did pitch another one, which was video rental by mail which was even more ridiculous because this is the dog food over that, to be honest with you. Listen, that video rental wasn't my favorite, but listen, it was an $8 billion category. It was pretty, we thought, ripe for disruption because basically the big player was Blockbuster and people hated Blockbuster. And we thought there's a lot of room for improvement. It's really hard to find movies and these due dates and these late fees. There's got to be a way to fix this. Listen, I had 15, 20 years in mail order experience and I did all the research and I go, it doesn't, it's not going to work because back then, this is in 1996, 97, you know, video rental was on VHS cassettes, those big, heavy, yes. expensive things. So that idea, you know, ended up on the side of the road with the dog food and the shampoo. If there was a breakthrough, it's a few months later, one morning when Reed uh, picks me up, he goes, I read about this cool thing called a DVD. It's like, I think it's going to replace the VHS. 
And what? Goes, yeah, it's thin. It's small. It's basically the size of a music CD. We thought, we go, wow, that actually might just solve all the big negatives about our old video rental by mail idea. And listen, here is the key because what we did not do was go, cool idea. Let's go work on a business plan. What we did not do was go, great, let's go rush in and work on our pitch deck. We said, let's quickly figure out whether this makes any sense. And mid-commute, just turned the car around and drove back down into town, went to look to buy a DVD, which of course weren't available then because it was in test market. So settled for a music CD and then went a few doors down and bought a little pink gift envelope like you put a greeting card in and put the CD in the envelope and mailed it to Reed's house. Next morning, when he went to pick me up, he had this little envelope with an unbroken CD that had gotten to his house in less than a day for the price of a stamp. You know, as they say in screenwriter speak, an inciting event, that was probably it. That's the moment we said, this, well, this, this just might work. Keep going forward. The CD, the imitation DVD arrives. It's not broken. It arrives for the price of a stamp the following day. And you realize, well, I guess we could do this. Then what do you guys do? Well, you know, then I go back. I'm spending my day at the office researching, you know, how many DVD players do they expect to sell? What, what do these things cost? How many DVDs are there? What would it take to put together a website to, uh, to build DVDs? How much money would I have to, blah, 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 blah. But eventually, the one thing you really wish you could find out is, is anyone going to care? Is anyone going to do this? And there certainly is no place. You can't go look at the other DVD rental by mail companies. And so you get to this point that every entrepreneur gets to where you have to make a decision and you have to make it based on incomplete or inconclusive or more frequently contradictory information. And we got to that point at the end of the summer where we said, as promising as this looks, we can't tell. The only way we're going to find out is to do it. Reed, bless his heart, wrote a check for $1.9 million dollars. I leased a office space. I hired a dozen people. We spent six months building a simple e-commerce website, like the type you could, most people listening could throw together in a couple hours for $29.95 a month. <laughs> and uh, six months later, off we go. We launched this little company called Netflix. Called Kibbles. <laughs> it was called Kibble up to within about a month before launch. Yeah, and it's kind of funny because, you know, when you when you start, you don't have your name yet, but you still have to do a lease and you still have to pay people. So you need a corporate name. One of my early mentors in the business who actually was on an early board at Netflix, uh, he gave me the advice. He goes, listen, Mark, when you're picking that early name, which is called a beta name, pick something really bad. Because when you get to the point you're trying to pick the real name, it's going to be so hard, you're going to be tempted <laughs> to use your beta name. And if it's not bad enough, you'll end up with a really weird name. Right. And Kibble was pretty weird. And I happen to own that domain already. Hey, you know, custom dog food. So Kibble it was up until the end. And we struggled. It, he was dead right. It was really hard finding something that was somewhat evocative of what we were trying to do, that wasn't taken, that we could get the domain name for and a trademark for and didn't mean something deeply offensive in Slovenian or whatever. We had all these candidate names. And one of them, in fact, was Netflix. But we didn't like Netflix because... Again, this is back from the late, you know, the 90s and late 80s. A porno used to be referred sometimes as a skin flick or skin flicks. So there was that flick stuff. And having the X didn't help any. But, you know, we got stuck. We couldn't find anything else that really worked better that we could get the right domains for. And so Netflix was a little bit porny, but, you know... <laughs> I guess I guess it did okay. Apparently, it worked. Your your wife though, when you shared the uh, the concept with her, she had a response. Uh, was she all in? Did she think Netflix was going to take you guys to the moon? No, my wife is a is a contrary indicator. Uh, but you know, so of course, when I pitched her the idea for video rental by mail, she she said that will never work. And, you know, she certainly was not the first or the last person to tell me that. I think everybody that I pitched video rental by mail to 
said that'll ever work. You know, my employees said that. My investors said that. Um, the podcast host John O'Leary said that when he walked into his brother-in-law's house in 2002 and saw this beat up piece of mail with this DVD in there. I'm like, dude, what is that? Go to Blockbusters. You know, why would you do that? That will never work. And now I uh, hear you and I are having this conversation 19 years later and Blockbuster is no longer. And uh, apparently it did work. In a matter of speaking, I mean, the, the, the irony is though, of course, that when we launched in April of 1998, they were right. It didn't work. <laughs> Nobody was willing to rent from us. It was really hard. And it was, it was a struggle. It took us a year and a half you know, of trying one thing after another to try and figure out some way to get video rental by mail to work. Um, and, and I think, but that's the lesson. The lesson is not just when everyone says that will never work, that sometimes it does. Yeah. The lesson is that the idea counts for nothing. The idea you start with almost never is the product you end up with. It's that journey. It's starting somewhere and through trial and error and tests and modulation that if you're lucky, eventually you navigate your way through these twists and turns to the thing that does work. And in Netflix's case, that took us uh, more than a year and a half. Mark, with, with most startups, it doesn't work. They just, they don't work. You know, most of them fail. They, they falter and they, they, you never hear of them ever again. They, they go the way of kibble. Was there something about this concept where you were like, I'm not allowing this thing to fail? Like one way or another, this thing is going to launch forward. Well, certainly that's your attitude. But the thing that makes a difference is we were lucky. Um, there's a huge elements of survivor bias in startups. I can point to a dozen of them. This wouldn't have worked with VHS. We bet on DVD. And we bet on DVD when it was available in seven cities and there was probably less than 60,000 players sold. No one could have known whether DVD was gonna go the way of the Laserdisc or the Betamax. And if it had, we, you and I would probably wouldn't be sitting here. Or if we were, we would be talking about dog food. If when we were in deep trouble about three years in and, and went to sell ourselves, tried to sell ourselves to Blockbuster, if they had said yes, we'd be telling a different story. If when Amazon offered to buy us, if we had said yes, we'd be telling a different story. There's so many twists and turns in every saga that it's complete hubris to think that it's all by the virtue and talent of the founders. Yes, you have to do a lot of things right to set yourself up that when the lucky break comes along, you can take advantage of it. You've got to be deeply paranoid and preparing yourself for hundreds of eventualities, almost all of which don't happen. So that when one does, you go, oh, I was ready for that one. As like I was the other 99 that didn't happen. But things have got to break your way. Um, and ultimately, I think that's a big piece of what separates the companies you see being successful from the ones that seem so promising and just don't go everywhere. Early in your business, I think you have an, a conversation up in Seattle, Washington with Jeff Bezos <laughs> and the team over there at a little company back then called Amazon. You decide not to move in that direction. A couple of years later, as you mentioned, you take a flight to Dallas. As I've heard you share that story before, I, uh, I felt emotionally tethered to it because I had in a taxi cab driver one time take me to a hotel. I landed in Dallas, had a conference the following day. He's driving me. We look on the left-hand side of the road, I believe, and there's this gorgeous glass building. And he said to me, do you know what used to be there? And I say, no. He says, that's Block Blockbuster's world headquarters. I'm like, it is. I don't see the sign. He goes, yeah, they're out of business. I used to work there. And we had an opportunity years ago to partner with this organization called Netflix. I bet you've heard of them. And I said, I have. He goes, but we decided not to buy them. Uh, and today I'm driving a taxi. I'm like, wow, it's a crazy story. So he shares with me the story. And then I hear you on the other side of the spectrum share your version of that story. It's just amazing how worlds collide. Would you share your version yeah, that's of that incredible. Story on the 27th floor in the boardroom, this huge boardroom where you're wearing, you know, a tuck in, tucked in shirt, maybe, and flip-flops, and the uh, entire team from Blockbuster is there to interrogate you. Just to set the stage, you have to know we were pretty desperate at that point. And it was ironic because we finally had figured out the business model that worked. Um, and it was this no due dates and no late fees and subscription. 
and it was killing it. I mean, it was taking off. We couldn't, uh, it was really hard fulfilling orders. We had so many new customers coming in. But as people who are familiar with the subscription business know, it's, it's very, very expensive because you pay all your acquisition costs upfront. And the revenue comes in in dribs and drabs over months and hopefully years. And because we were so successful, we were losing money super fast. And then the double whammy is this is right at the peak of the dot-com bubble bursting. So there is no money, uh, especially not for a company with dot-com uh, on its name, the Scarlet Letters. So we said, oh, we're toast. And that's when we came up with the idea that it's time to pursue these strategic alternatives everyone's always talking about, which of course is selling to Blockbuster. And it took us months to get the meeting because we were just a gnat. And as you were alluding to, they called us when we were at a corporate retreat. So I show up in the headquarters in Dallas and I'm wearing shorts and a t-shirt and Reed is there in a Hawaiian shirt and the blockbuster folks are in, not in suits, but they're in, you know, wearing a blazers that probably cost more than my car did. And we make the pitch that we, they'll buy us, we'll combine forces, that we'll run the online business, they'll run the stores. And we outlined all the amazing synergies from having this blended rental model. And it was actually going great. You know, they were leaning in and they were nodding their heads and asking good questions until they asked the big one, which is how much. Yeah. And we'd rehearsed this, of course, in the plane. And Reed leans forward and goes like, $50 million? Maybe a little bit more confidently than that. My recollection tones it a little. It was not the reaction we expected. Basically, they laughed at us. It was crushing. It was crushing because we had fought so hard for this meeting and it was so self-evidently a better model that we couldn't believe they'd say no. And so this was going to be the thing that saved us. We were done. This was the, you know, in the movies, the deus ex machina moment yeah. where our plucky heroes are trapped in the dead end canyon and there's no way out. And then dun, 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 comes the cavalry. Um, no, the cavalry wasn't showing. And not only was Blockbuster not going to save us, they were going to compete with us. You, you get back on the plane, you fly back to the corporate meeting, your tail is between your legs, you lost you know, the Calvary did not arrive and now they're actually going to compete directly with you as you're already losing. What changed? There was a new resolve and a resolve built from this realization that there was no easy way out, that there was no trick, no secret, no stone that we could turn over and find the secret passage. Other advice that my dad used to give me is he go, you know, sometimes, Mark, the only way out is through. I realized at that point that this was one of those times that if we were going to make it, we had to just turn and face Blockbuster head on, that we were going to have to compete with them. We were going to have to figure out a way to find their vulnerability. We we're going to have to wait to find money, going to have to wait to trim our expenses to be able to last until the market recovered. We were going to have to do all these things to survive. But having that clarity is a tremendous motivator um, and a tremendous tool and power that companies like Blockbuster didn't quite have at that time. And that's a very, very difficult thing for any company to compete against is when a smaller company has that level of focus and resolve. As you're sharing that, I'm even thinking from an individual standpoint, frequently when someone's sick, they're really, really scared. But then when they know what the thing is, it's, it's cancer, it's this or it's that, it's a mess, whatever the thing is, now we know. Let's go. Let's go, man. Let's get our chemo. Let's get the treatment. Let's line up. Let's, let me go to the, get the meds. I'm all in. I know who the enemy is and I'm ready to fight forward. There can really be some conviction once you recognize the Calvary's not coming. Uh, let's go. Yeah, there's, there's no easy way out. It, it's really very true. There's a tremendous esprit de corps at a startup and it's because it is you against the world. This is not fun this is survival, which is fun. <laughs> so it, it's very similar to that. You know, as you know, I you know I do a lot of coaching of early stage entrepreneurs. And I have a podcast where I help coach early stage entrepreneurs. I do phone calls all the time with people, and so much of it is not tactics or strategy. It's not what's the tech stack and what's the go to market. It's these personal things. How do I have the confidence to keep going? Yeah. 
how do I maintain my relationship while I'm doing this? How do I keep my relationship with my co-founders? How do I decide what to do? Um, and I think these are challenges that everybody faces, whether you're an entrepreneur or not. Um, it's it's their universal truth, really. So when you get home from Dallas, how long from that date until you recognized, you know what, uh, David is going to take down Goliath and, and we're proving it. So how long did, you, did it take for you to recognize we've turned the corner and uh, Netflix is going to grow into Netflix? It took approximately two years because we had to completely transform the business model. If you're gonna go it alone, you've gotta put yourself in a position you can go it alone. We had to do a very painful layoff, which as a entrepreneur founder is probably the most painful thing you can do in order to ensure we could survive without these unreasonable injections of external venture capital money. We had to narrow down our business plan and say, we're not gonna be a portal. We're not gonna do movie tickets. We're not gonna do advertising. We do one thing, we're gonna do one thing well. Um, we had to get everybody on board with saying, you're gonna have to do more. The remarkable thing was it made it better. Mm. It made it so much more fun. Uh, it was a renaissance at, at Netflix, really, and gave us this confidence that we never want to give up this feeling of being a true startup. But about two years later, we finally had gotten to a stable enough situation. We had come up with these incredibly clever business model innovations that allowed us to finally go public, which allowed us to have the resources to adequately compete with Blockbuster, not to mention to bring in the talent and the staying power to compete with Blockbuster. I really don't gloat about the Blockbuster story because they had 60,000 employees. A lot of people lost jobs. A lot of people who had investments in these franchises, you know, lost their life saving and you can't feel good about that. There is a, and an irony, you know, and a, and, a, and a moral that this little company with no experience in the video industry did manage to take down the $6 billion category leader. And that's a message too for the blockbusters of the world that if you're not willing to transform yourself, well, someone else is gonna transform you for you. I guess the ultimate irony is that, you know, the company they could have bought for $50 million is now worth $250 billion. <laughs> So, so there's that. So you have that going for you. Yeah, uh, got that going for us. Unbelievable. You know, and I, I heard you speak at a corporate event and the gentleman asking the question was asking around. So, you know, what are you most proud of? Knocking down the 9,000 store giant or the 250 billion in revenue that you became and all these other things that was part of the question. And you actually responded, you know, I, I think I'm most proud of my optimism. Tell me why the succinctness of that answer. I'm most proud of my optimism. You've read your share of corporate memoirs and they all should be subtitled, look how amazing I was. And I specifically did not want that to be my story because I don't, you know, I'm not particularly smart and a lot of people are better prepared and a lot of people work harder than I do. And I think the secret weapon is optimism is that I'm a believer. You know, I'm not, I'm not just the glass half full guy. I'm the glass overflowing guy. You know, probably the analogy I gave then is, you know, I do a lot of angel investing. I should be an amazing angel investor. I get great deal flow. I have a lot of experience. I can recognize the flaws, but I've got this character flaw, which is I'm sitting there and I'm shaking my head and going, oh, this is doomed. But before I can stop myself, I've, I've grabbed the whiteboard marker and I've jumped up and I go, this, this is how we can make it work. And this flaw that I have is that I like every idea that I hear. <laughs> I see that all could work. You were interviewing a guy who had this idea of creating essentially a portal or an app for people who like science fiction, 90s shows. And I'm like, my whole time I'm listening to this, I'm thinking, Dude, this is never going to work. And I could see, I could, I could see through the podcast, you're like whiteboarding this thing out, trying to like, yeah, but if we do this, it might work. And so you, you really <laughs> do. You are the most optimistic guy I think I've ever read or heard. It's crazy how you get behind these ideas. And with a few tweaks and bends, eh, maybe we can make a go of it. There's an important component to this optimism, okay? And it's best exemplified Early on, this is back way back when I was working in a software company, I was leading people 
And no, I was telling them, another company, I was trying to get recruiting people for it. And I'm going, this company is going to be worth you know, a lot of money, some hundred million dollars at some point. And afterwards, someone pulled me aside and go, God, Mark, do you feel a little bad, a little guilty for bullshitting someone like that? I was taken back. And I go, well, it's not bullshit if you believe it. All of this optimism, the, the turning around the sci-fi portal, I believe it. I see it. It's doable. That's the power. The power of positive thinking, the power of conviction, but not artificial. I believe it. And also not, you know, there was a, a spirituality 15 years ago called The Secret and Oprah got behind it and everybody else thought if you just shut your eye, it's an existence. The genius of your raw, <laughs> crazy, ferociously optimistic attitude is that then you go to work and then you collaborate. Mm -hmm. And then you pray over it. Then you think about it. Then you then you trip forward. And then you learn the lessons. And then you do better the following day. And so it's not just shutting your eyes and singing kumbaya. It's movement. It's movement is wildly underrated. So what I know to be true, Mark, is a lot of our listeners are not entrepreneurs actually, and they're not looking for venture capital, and they're not looking to knock down the next blockbuster of the world. They're trying to figure out how to become a better nurse how to do a better job teaching third graders, how to get through COVID while homeschooling their kids, how to stay married or find a spouse or beat back an addiction or do a million things that they're trying to do to stay somewhat emotionally healthy in life. And right now, a lot of folks are struggling. What, what encouragement, and I know it's so broad and in some regards intentionally so, what encouragement would you provide our listeners right now who are just right now bumping up against a dead end? It, it's, it's exactly the right thing to ask. The reason I'm here with you today is not because I believe the secret is for people to have businesses. I don't do this because I want to drive our economy. Uh, it's, it's because I had this revelation um, a handful of years ago, which is that all of these exact same tips and tricks and secrets that I've learned over 40 years as an entrepreneur are broadly applicable. They are not just for business. They are absolutely the exact same things you use to make any idea real. Everybody has ideas and not just business ideas. You're right. They have an idea because I'd like to get a better job. I'd like to find a better apartment. I'd like to have the guts to ask this person to do this. We all have these dreams. You know, everybody who's taking a shower has an idea. People get stuck on is where do I go from here? And the exact same process that you would use to take an idea for a business and make it real are the exact same steps and confidence that you use to take anything you want to make happen and make it real. And if, if people grasp that, then I'm, I've done something. And again, this is not a plug, but in the book, I'm absolutely trying to demonstrate not this is a business book. This is a book about a person who had an idea and a dream and how he tried to make it real, as well as trying to give people the tips that they could use the exact same things to make whatever dream they have uh, real. That, and you mentioned that, you know, I have the podcast and it's not interviewing celebrities. It's not regaling people with stories of business success. It's literally getting to be a fly on the wall as I'm working with people who are all struggling to overcome something and coaching them through it. So it's not abstract lessons. It's concrete. How does this fit in something someone's literally really day-to-day -day struggling with? I look forward to being on your podcast soon because I need ideas on how to trip my way <laughs> forward too, man, in just about everything I touch. So uh, it is a phenomenal podcast. It is a phenomenal book. And it is a reminder that it is not easy, but it is possible. And so uh, we have seven questions, Mark, that we ask every one of our guests as we wrap up the podcast. And uh, man, I've been honored to be with you on this one. So I'm going to take you directly into it. What is the most influential book, or in your case, I guess, movie that you have ever read or ever watched? I'm going to pick a book. It's a book called Endurance, Shackleton's Incredible Voyage, I think is a subtitle by Alf Bert Lansing, which is a story, of course, of uh, Ernest Shackleton. Um, one incredible polar explorer and most incredible leadership story uh, I've ever read. So I, I read it in high school and it was uh, in, interesting in the same way The Hobbit was interesting. And then I read it again <laughs> two months ago and it blew my mind. 
the, what Shackleton went through and those boys went through and the venture to just survive the winter, but then to get on to Elephant Island and then on back, it's crazy. And, and then you and I complained that uh, our coffee came out cold this morning and it, it, it just puts everything in perspective. My gosh, human beings are profoundly resilient. Actually, I wrote a blog post, uh, you know, a year or so ago called uh, Everything I Ever Learned About Leadership I Learned from Ernest Shackleton. Because I think so many lessons in how he was able to navigate what life threw at him there. What, so for those who aren't going to pick up that book tomorrow on Read Endurance, give us one lesson that you learned from Shackleton. Better to take long shot at big success than to be safe in mediocrity. His boat was crushed in the ice. It sank. They were on an ice floe, which was huge and comfortable. And they had food and they had dog races and they were playing cricket on the ice and all those things. And he realized if he sat here, yes, he was comfortable, but eventually, little by little, that ice floe was going to splinter and they'd all be dumped in the sea. Better now to set out in open boats across the open ocean in the winter uh, for the possibility of being saved than stay here safe but distinctly unsound. Mm. And what an unbelievably courageous moment. Question number two is what is one positive characteristic or one trait that you possessed as a little kid growing up in New York that you wish you exhibited as brilliantly today? Lack of embarrassment. What's the, I mean, there's, a, there's a single word for that, whatever that, unabashedness, I don't know. Complete willingness to make an ass of oneself. Complete lack of self, not self-awareness, self-awareness in the negative sense, I guess. I didn't care what anyone thought at all. And so it allowed me to try anything. Um, and what a rapid learning experiment that is. I still do my very best to do it, but I'm only human. I have to fight to not care to be willing to make an ass of oneself, myself. The more I'm willing to make an ass of myself, the faster I learn stuff. Mark, if your home caught fire and all living things, spouse, children, pets, kibbles, everybody's up, man. You have an opportunity to run back in and grab one item, just one thing. What would you come back with? Nothing. There's nothing. Nothing's that important. I mean, it's just stuff. I've had a lot of economic success, obviously, and I'm not going to be so obnoxious is to say doesn't make a difference because I don't need to worry about having health care. I don't need to worry about being able to feed my family. I don't need to worry about paying for education. But God, beyond that, it doesn't really move the needle that much for me. I still drive a beater car and all that stuff. So no, I, I'm not going to, I'm not going to risk myself to go in for an object. And there's no family heirloom. You know, your family heritage is remarkable. I had a whole bunch of questions around that. We just didn't get around to it, but there, there's nothing there's just, around Nothing not a single, there's not, there's not one thing which I say I have to have that at all. It's not like a, and you saw, you know, it happened to Bruce Willis in Pulp Fiction when he goes back in for the watch. That's a, <laughs> nothing good comes to that. If you haven't seen that movie. <laughs> if you could sit on a bench and have a long conversation with anybody, living or dead, who would you want to be seated next to? God, who just jumped into mine, believe it or not, was uh, Sigmund Freud, which would be which was actually was a relative, which is why it popped it. And you mentioned, you were kind of alluded earlier, so he's in my mind. But it would be so interesting to understand where his thinking came from. And certainly Shackleton. I mean, gosh, a million people. I'm a kind of a history buff. Caesar? How cool would that be? Anyway, who knows? Lots of lots. Of, I could spend forever. I, that'd be a what park bench. I would never, never get me off. Caesar and Shackleton and Freud analyzing all of you while you're talking about your adventures. <laughs> Indeed. Uh, what, what is the best advice that Caesar or Freud or uh, Shackleton or anybody else ever gave you? So best advice you've ever received? Well, I remember Sigmund Freud pulled me aside and said, Mark, this internet thing is going to be big. And Bitcoin, Mark. Bitcoin. <laughs> You know, I don't know. Nothing leaps into my mind. That, not that I haven't gotten great advice. What advice would you give your 20-year-old self? So if you could go back in time a few years, what would you oh, whisper into your ear? Trust your judgment about people. It took a long time to realize that my intuition about people was pretty good. But of course, it takes a long time to get to the point you trust that intuition. Is this person trustworthy? Is this person not trustworthy? Is this person a jerk I don't want to associate with? I realized I, that... What I generally feel early on is usually bears out and that I should trust that more.
Mark Randolph, it has been said that all great people can have their lives summed up in one sentence. How would you like your one sentence to read? He got people off their ass. Mark Randolph, uh, founding father <laughs> of Netflix, you somehow got people off their ass and have made a profound difference in the world because of it. I, I want to thank you for taking time to be with our audience, to be with me today. It really was a lot of fun, man. John, this was certainly a wide-ranging and eclectic set of topics, so that was fun for me as well. From Freud to Shackleton to Netflix and back again, that is Mark Randolph. My name is John O'Leary, and this is your day. Live Inspired. And now, a word from our friends at Keeley Companies. Keeley Companies aspires to be a true leader for businesses and communities. In the words of their CEO, my friend, his name is Rusty Keeley, with a world-class culture focused on people and customer-centric approach, we're truly in the business of people. Check more out about Keeley Companies at KeeleyCompanies.com.